Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast, your weekly guide to what the best performing fund managers have been up to and indeed explaining why they have the best track records. Uh, I'm Richard Lander and I'm joined by my co-host Angus Foote and our expert researchers Nisha Long and Frank Tolbert. Uh, hello to all of you and welcome. Uh, the heat is on this week as temperatures in and around London hit 30 degrees centigrade and equity markets bubble up to or to match, or indeed some cases exceed pre-pandemic levels. Uh, this week we're going to focus on two sectors that perhaps had more to lose than most in the pandemic. Frank is going to focus on equity income, where much of the income bit of those that phrase has been jeopardised by companies cutting or halting dividends. But first we'll hear from Nisha on emerging markets, which in theory was another area that could have been really badly affected by the pandemic. Uh, but Nisha, tell us how things have turned out over the past few months. Yeah, um, not too bad, actually. Um, around 150 managers have received a rating this month in the glo for global emerging market equity funds. Um, there's eight managers with the AAA rating, which is great, but only one of these managers um, has funds registered for sale across Europe. The others are just US or UK, such as um, mentioned a few US-based Roderick Snell, a very good track record from Bailey Gifford, and UK-based uh, Will Sutcliffe. Um, he's also from Bailey Gifford. But the manager I wanted to talk about today is um, Jory Rask Nerdke, I hope I've got his name right, um, of Polar Capital. Um, so he's back to a AAA rating this month. Um, he had his last AAA in 2015. Um, when he was at Nordea. Um, so Jory and his team actually joined Polar Capital in June 2018 when they set up their EM franchise at Polar Capital. And what we've done is we've stitched together his track record from his time at Nordea um, with his new funds at Polar Capital, which are in the same sector and they have the same benchmark as his um, previous fund. So we've you know, been able to continue his track record. Um, so he manages the Polar Capital Emerging Market Stars Fund and the Polar China Stars Fund. And with that stitch track record, he's come back in, you know, from last month he was double A rated, but he's gone up to a triple A um, this much, which is absolutely great. Um, so for, tell us about him. What's he been uh, specializing in and making yeah. good on? Yeah, so he's a, basically he's a fundamentally driven an, um, analyst and um, it's all based on stock selection. Um, he has the usual suspects in there with IT, real estate and communication services as um, overweight positions and underweight energy, financials and industrials, which, as you know, you know, past three or four months, you know, haven't been doing great during the pandemic. Um, he is underweight China um, with some of most of these funds are in the emerging market um, against the MSCI emerging markets um, index and he's overweight India and we touched on this um, in the last podcast and he also holds Vietnam which is not really an emerging market it's frontier market but as him being an active manager he has that you know leeway to um, invest in these I mean he holds the usual suspects such as Samsung Electronics which has been doing well MediaTek Alibaba Tencent all doing well on the back of um, you know working at home more software etc but what he has been doing is buying into India, Brazil, and as I mentioned before, and Vietnam. Um, but it's looking for long term. And this is the thing about this manager. He's long term. It's not going to be the knee jerk reactions, which we might have seen with a few managers in the last couple of months, you know, taking, you know, some stocks out, putting money into right. 
others, but he has about a nine month view of his dogs, which I think, cool. you know, has held him well. Angus, come in there. Yeah, I get very confused by this uh, emerging market, uh, these emerging market conversations. I mean, we talked, um, we talked last week, didn't we, about China and whether China should be a standalone allocation. And uh, you know what? What are emerging markets? What's a, a global emerging market fund? You mentioned Vietnam, that you, so far as I'm aware, is still generally classified as a frontier market. But then you know you have Brazil in the mix. That's not a country that many people would want to. Uh, take a punt on at the moment, I wouldn't have thought. So this whole idea, I mean, do, do we need to reclassify what we call emerging markets or are these funds going to evolve in some way or, or, or be, be renamed or, or, or redefined themselves, Nisha, do you think? I think um, when you mentioned that, I think China, for example, I think we've heard it from um, super allocators in the past as well, that China is, you know, in its own right, a standalone. We can't really call it an emerging market. It's not doesn't have the you know the GDP as it used to, growing compared to the developed markets. Um, but then again, somewhere like Brazil, India, Vietnam, they are still emerging. They are still you know way behind some of the developing markets. But I think China, the way it is going at the moment with five G, you know everything, you know the technology, all the things that they have in the background. I don't think we, it has to be a separate entity. And I think a lot of people are looking at that as a separate entity. And most of these active managed funds, China is underweight compared to the index as well. So I think, you know, a lot of managers are cottoning on to this as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to somebody recently who was talking about um, Asia innovative tech as a theme to play. And obviously that, that seems to transcend in any talk of emerging markets. If, if countries are, 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 are producing enough innovative tech opportunities to be worth investing in, then they're probably beyond what you would call emerging. Um, just the whole classification thing, I think is really interesting. Uh, uh, you, Nisha, wrote a piece, without wishing to flatter you, but you wrote an excellent piece this week about the reclassification that's gone on with FANGs, which we talked about in a previous I podcast. thought you should flatter her, because that was a really good piece. <laughs> Thank you. So. Well, it was, and I, I just think it's a really interesting um, area to get into, because it does show the need for investors to really be on top of what it is they're investing in. Because if I buy a tech fund that doesn't hold the fangs, well, I, you know, I, until I read Nisha's article, I would have found that pretty surprising. Just as if I buy a global emerging market fund, is, you know, does that include Vietnam? Does it include China? People are going to have to drill into these strategies and, and portfolios to, uh, to uh, much greater depth to really understand what's going on there. No, absolutely. I think we've seen um, some, for, for, for example, FTSE as well, you know, we've seen some like, say, downgrades from the 100. Um, also this week, we're going to see the Russell indices are rebalancing. We're going to see some of, you know, changes happening. And I think, but investors need to be aware of what these changes are, what has been added to these indices, what has been dropped out, you know, it affects their investments and it, it might surprise them as well, especially after this about the market cap sizes. Some yeah. companies have lost a lot of money. So you're looking at the small caps, you know, who's dropped out. I think Friday is the day to really look at for Good. these a, indices. A, a sort of uh, passive, not pun intended, passive plug there for uh, active managers. Frank, uh, you want to come in here? Yeah, I think this is just shows you're very much at the mercy of the index provider. And uh, there was a sort of squabble, on a squabble, a little tete-a-tete, Taiwan was being considered to be moved out of the emerging market indices, but China would not like that. If, if, if Taiwan became not an emerging market while China still was one, 
little bit of friction there. It's the same sort of situation with South Korea. On many metrics, you would say South Korea is a developed market, and yet it still sits in MSCI's uh, Emerging Market Index. I think that's the case. Maybe that eventually got through. But yeah, you are at the mercy of, of, of what they decide to do with their indices. And Morgan Stanley, MSCI owner, they hold most of the power. They are the most tracked uh, group of indices in the world. And then second is FTSE Russell, obviously. But it is, um, yeah, you, yeah. You, you have to go with what they build. And I would expect most people to actually take a look in and see what the manager's style is. Do they like to go and invest in certain areas? Also, don't forget that they can go off benchmark by about 20%, most funds in, in most jurisdictions. So you can always, even if you're just a US-only manager, you could hold 20% in China. You know, that yeah, happen. I think there's a sure. lot of po politics here. I mean, there's only three major index providers. I know there's, there's, there's sort of others as well, but it's MSCI, S&P, and and FTSE Russell. And other index providers are available. Other index providers are indeed available, but it's shrunk from like 10 to th three major players in the last 10 years with, with various mergers and acquisitions. And I think, you know, active fund managers have a love-hate relationship with them. They've got to pay them to track them. They've got to pay them if they're going to base their passive funds on them. So there's a lot of lobbying. You see columns in the FT and the Wall Street Journal. Do these people have too much power? Uh, are they democratic? They would argue that they are, that they consult, uh, and they have, you know, they put massive amounts of computing power into coming up with these decisions. But it's it's going to rumble on as mm. uh, as passive grows, and indeed as as uh, as the global investing splits and resplits, and whether you should have China on its own, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, to, to Frank's point about, you know, investors obviously are going to drill into this stuff. Yeah, that's, of course, that's true. You know, I wouldn't suggest otherwise. But I think there is a bit of a two-edged sword here for fund analysts, because on the one hand, um, lots more work for them to, to drill into these things. And, and, and there's more, there's just more work to be done in analyzing and comparing strategies, which might not be comparable. But the other side of that, of course, is that... It, for fund analysts, if that's valuable work to be done, it makes their role more valuable. Good. Uh, okay, I think uh, that's, that was a really nice discussion. Thank you, Nisha, on emerging markets. Uh, and so we'll go to Frank. Equity income, or some people call it at the moment, equity without the income. So Yeah, not a, not a great deal of love right now for equity income uh, as, as an asset class. Obviously, a lot of uncertainty around these vehicles. Just how many companies are going to pay dividends? What will the recovery in dividends look like for those that temporarily cease? Um, there was a, a sort of brief significant rally in income stocks uh, in recent weeks, but that qu quickly petered out with fears of a second wave. Uh, US uh, high dividend index is even behind value in the recovery. So that shows you where it sits on the pecking charts. Uh, growth is up 45%, value up 30%, uh, 37% rather, and high dividend up 33%. In general, I'm not a huge fan of high yield indices. I think they fail to uh, capture the companies that uh, income, uh, equity income funds actually invest in. And so you end up looking quite different to the benchmark, but it do, still gives you sort of an, a steer of what's going on. Um, in terms of portfolios I want to flag, after last week saying that Morgan Stanley, I don't associate them with asset management, we've done it again. I'm talking about global equity income here, and it is the MSINVF Global Brands Equity Income Fund, catchily named as ever, run by CityWire A-rated duo, William Locke and Bruno Paulson. Um, let me start out by saying that any global equity income fund that has outperformed the index has done a sensational job. Um, there are only three teams of managers worldwide in this category that are added value over the past three years. And two of them, you can only buy in Canada. 
Obviously, I'm not talking about the Canadian one here. Um, it's been so hard to outperform uh, even before the crisis, and that's because you're benched against global equities and the rise of technology stocks, the, the weight that, that the US now you know, commands in the global index. You had to get your call spot on. And obviously, tech stocks as a whole don't really pay income yet. That probably will change as they become a more mature industry. Um, I like this portfolio. I think it's quite interesting. So obviously, it's focusing on these global brands. And as you'd expect, massively overweight consumer staples, 35% of the fund versus 9% of the index. Big position in tech, 32% versus 20%. And healthcare, again, 21% versus 15%. So it's in all the right places, particularly at the moment. Um, it takes chunky positions. This is not a benchmark hugger. It's got 30 stakes in the fund. Um, it's got that notable dividend paying tech stock. Microsoft is a whopping 9% allocation of the fund. It's got a further 9% in Reckitt Benkiser, owners of, among others, brands like Dettol, Nurofen, Strepsils, companies that are doing pretty well uh, in their own right at the moment. Um, so it's done pretty well. The rest of the top 10, very familiar. Philip Morris, Visa, Accenture, SAP, Procter & Gamble. Companies you'd have heard of that in, as in the main pay really pretty solid dividends. Uh, I like it. it's an interesting twist on equity income and it's enabled to be one of those few global equity income funds that's actually outperformed in this market, which has been so trying. So I think um, it's, it's certainly worth a look. You are going global equity income, tough asset class. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a sense, you know, your granddad's equity income fund is dying, isn't it? Because that was all about banks and hydrocarbon companies, uh, which, you know, paid four, five, six percent a year and now just had a, a massive shock placed upon them uh, with the pandemic, overlain perhaps by, you know, ESG, which, which is a sort of terribly difficult environment for the hydrocarbon companies. In income stocks haven't done well since 2015, you know, just, just, just generally. And obviously, you mentioned ESG there. It's all been about a growth focus. That's the way equity markets have pivoted to. So you, you've been really struggling to outperform. And it makes historically good managers look bad, primarily because any company that pays a dividend hasn't been particularly valued since 2015. It's quite some time. Um, the second fund I want to I wanna focus on is the... Um, Trojan Income Fund run by CityY A-rated Francis Brook. This is a UK-only fund, so sorry for all of you out there. It's also co-managed by A-rated Blake Hutchins and AA-rated uh, Hugo Yeur. I said that right. He also runs a topically an ethical variant of the Trojan um, Income Fund. It's a three and a half billion portfolio in sterling. The reason I'm flagging it up is it's had a whopping 370 million inflow last month the most for any actively managed portfolio in the UK. And that clearly indicates that there are some people out there that don't think income is dead. Uh, I must add that I own this fund. I think I'm contractually, I have to say that. I wasn't part of that 370 million. Obviously, if, if I was, it would have moved much more significantly. 370 pound more like. <laughs> yeah, 370 million and one pound. Um, so I own it, I'm obviously a fan. It's easy to be a fan of, of Brooks though, because Long-standing manager, great track record. Um, it hasn't been the time for income, but he sits nicely at the top of the peer group. Top decile over three and five years, second decile over one year to the end of May. So he's, he's really put down a marker for being great. It's a very defensive fund in this space, targets um, low levels of indebtedness, maintains low volatility. It's grown, it had grown its dividend every year since inception in 2004, I think. Every year except last year, uh, but it's still turned in a highly respectable 4.1% yield. 
that's not bad in the context of what you can get in other parts of the market. Fine, it's not high yield, where you might be looking at more like a six to eight percent reward for, for your risks, uh, depending on where you're investing. But it's, it's not bad. Uh, it has very little oil and gas. That's part of the reason it did very well. That's a huge part of the UK market in terms yeah. of majors. Uh, so just 2% there. So it avoided the worst of the falls. And they're the ones who cut their dividends. Um, very little in industrials as well. The most cyclically linked part. Uh, that's another tempting thing. Again, it's got high weighting to staples. It's also got Reckitt Benkinster uh, as a 5.4% stake. Uh, it's got Unilever 5.7% slight overweight to healthcare major GlaxoSmithKline, a further 5%. So it's not big into healthcare, which you'd have you know, been, been very happy about. Uh, and it, in general, it's just been an even bleaker time for the UK income stocks. Uh, FTSE all shares up Amiga 27% in the recovery and FTSE 350 high yield is just 21%. So UK equity market hasn't done well and UK income stocks have done even worse. There's a lot of value traps out there, aren't there, just waiting to lure in unsuspecting equity income managers uh so yeah it must be not, not only do they cut their dividend but you know then have profit warnings and, and stuff like that so the capital value falls so double jeopardy if you like <laughs> yes two things frank you said there that, that struck a chord in me firstly you were talking about a uk only fund and you know historically equity income investing is a uk concept it's not something that has uh, it has a deep history across Europe. And you also said that those types of funds hadn't had a great run since 2015, really. Now, I remember back, it must have been five or six years ago when I was still a magazine editor, we asked a lot of our European, as in our not ex-UK European readers, to, uh, to tell us which income funds they were invested in, uh, in for a magazine article. And a lot of them came back with fixed income examples because that to them, income was fixed income. They had no understanding of the concept of, or, or if they had an understanding of it, they weren't really aware of it as a, as a major and relevant asset class for them. So I guess what I would be interested to know, and we, I guess we have no way of telling this, but how many of those pan-European investors started buying into income funds or started looking at that concept at what was probably the wrong time um, and the um, the other thing, I guess, a question for you, Frank, is, is there a danger with this kind of falling off in dividends that we're inevitably going to see over, over the next months and potentially years? Are people going to look elsewhere for their income? Are people going to look to other asset classes or other types of strategies for income? And if so, what might those be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. The sort of um, obviously equity income struggling and perceived kind of risks in debt markets uh, might lead to a really radical notion of buying growth and redeeming units for your exactly. income. No, well, that, is, that is the Terry Smith point of view. He is, I mean, it's not, it's not just Terry Smith. I mean, every growth manager yeah. since as long as I've been uh, in the industry has, has said similar things. Listen, I'm churning out much higher numbers than these income funds, and yet they're praised and they get all the assets. Uh, Coming back to your point, Angus, I mean, there was a time when uh, equity income was absolutely bell of the ball, particularly in the UK. It's still one of the areas with the highest outperformance rates to really well in the, uh, both the dot-com crash and then again in the credit crisis because for, 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 for a variety of reasons, I don't want to go into now, I could write a whole paper on it, but it's, um, 
it's definitely lost its luster. In the US, the US income is quite, a, I, I get the sense quite a fledgling area as well. There aren't many income focused US equity funds that have existed for a long time. And the ones that do, the one that comes to mind, JP Morgan's Claire Hart, who runs a, a very large strategy you can, you can access globally. She's one that, that's done well in just US focused income stocks. Um, and uh, well, yeah. the, other, the other thing that might have done for equity income in the UK and without getting too parochial, is, you know, those two words, Neil and Woodford, uh, who, <laughs> yeah. you know, led everyone up the garden path for 10 years with fantastic equity income performance in the, in the stodgy stocks that everyone uh, trashed during the dot-com boom. And then, you know, we don't need to explain what happened to him. Uh, he ran his own, went off to run his own fund. It went off path terribly and ended in disaster. The people have had their money trapped there for a year, for a year and more. So, uh, in, in fairness, though, I mean, last time he was good, equity income was good. Back to yeah. yeah. So I think the ship sailed long before Woodford really started um, yeah. giving the sector potentially a bad name. I don't think it's the sector as a whole. But what no, I, would, I, mean, I, I would say, I mean, his, from what I know of it, his problems are not re really related to, to an equity income strategy, related to not doing what he was supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, I, but I think from what everything we're saying here, you know, equity income has a, has a marketing problem here. You know, do you change the name of the sector uh, because there's not much income? The, the man who used to be the Pied Piper for the whole sector, is, is, his name is Mud. Uh, maybe that's something for the Investment Association yeah. to, to think. They're not particularly quick off the draw. Sorry, Nisha. Yeah, just one point I wanted to make is that after the global financial crisis, because the yields of fixed income funds were going down so much, equity income was seen as the next place to go for income and get your stock. So there was a massive rise in equity income and funds around that time. But obviously it lost its um, run yeah, five yeah. years ago because that basically not good for income either. Mind you, if we'd had, you know, the... the Perfect hindsight, we would have all jumped into high yield after the global financial crisis because that was like something like, you know, 200 basis points above investment grade at one point. Look, we've rabbited on for about half an hour now. So uh, I think we've wrapped up two very interesting sectors rather nicely. So I'm going to say thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you to Frank, to Nisha and Angus for being such good companions on this podcast. And we will be back next week. 